in my teens, I realized like, all right, I need to get a grip on my mental health. So through a variety of good friends, um, family I had talked to, therapy, personal experience being outside, I started to get more of a grip on my mental health. And I believe that coincided. I don't know exactly if it caused, which caused the other, but I know they coincided with each other. Um, of just finding out who I was. Hey friends, welcome back to A Different Perspective. In today's episode, Davin and I will be interviewing Mario Fellino, a very compassionate and intelligent man of many talents. We hope you enjoy his experience and getting to meet him and enjoy today's episode. Welcome everyone. We have our first guest on A Different Perspective. His name is Mario and he's an experienced personal trainer, fitness professional, and an advocate of sustainable living and fitness practices. Check out his Instagram handle at biglift underscore biggerheart in the description. You'll find on his Instagram a number of educational, wholesome, and unique videos learning how to work with your hands and learn about what it truly means to be human. Mario, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thank you guys for having me. I'm really excited. Absolutely. And we're excited to have you um, learn a little bit more about what you got going on and uh, what you're about. So uh give us a little give our viewers give us a little intro of yourself and um, where you come from your background and how you got interested in engaged in fitness okay yeah so um a little bit about me i grew up in north central illinois uh it what used to be uh, a little bit kind of out in the country now it's somewhat absorbed by chicago so if people look it up they'll kind of they'll kind of see now it's a city but when i was growing up um you know i had a single mom and I was oh just oh I played some sports, but I was more interested in uh, self direction and things I like to do, and I liked fitness. Um, I didn't necessarily have a ton of equipment at the time. I did save up and buy some, so I started getting into fitness um, right around middle school, really, to help me deal with some things that were going on in my life at the time. And um, I found that when I didn't have something, um, just either from a cost or simply just a location perspective, I was like, you know what, like, might as well try to make it. What's the worst that could happen? So I really got into creating a lot of my own equipment and that led me into the outdoors, which became a very large part of my life. And those two were always intertwined for me, which is kind of where my Instagram comes from. It's a lot of outdoors and fitness intertwined. So throughout the years, throughout high school, I got much more into the outdoors and building my own equipment and carpentry and uh, woodworking later from that. But um, fitness to me was a way to express my creativity while also challenging myself. And uh, the outdoors was similar to that um, in the way that it made me feel. And I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that self-direction and that um, just the opportunity to make the things that I saw in my head real. Um, so as time went on, you know, uh, once you get the ball rolling, it's somewhat, it always gets a little bit better. You can always, once you figure out one concept, you can kind of build on those. So throughout five or six years, I had really, uh, developed a, a strong connection to the outdoors and fitness. And I saw them really, I guess not as the same thing, but they kind of fell into the same category for me. And that's self-directed, uh, self-challenging, uh, way to express who I was. And um, at 17, I ended up, um, I basically just said, you know what, like, I don't want to be in Illinois anymore. It just wasn't for me at the time. So I headed basically as far as I could west, 
until I hit the ocean. I hit the ocean in Seattle. Um, and I went to an outdoors school there for a year and received several vocational certifications. Um, and fitness was always part of that uh, as well. I was just actually working in the outdoor industry now and adding fitness to that, which I really enjoyed. Um, so I was working in the fitness or the outdoor industry and fitness was again, a side, it's just kind of not a hobby, but a side thing for me. And then it kind of flipped. I went to WSU two years later uh, after I had managed some gyms for a while and worked at a ski resort. And at WSU, it kind of flipped. Outdoors became my hobby and fitness became my profession um, as I received more certifications to work in the fitness industry. And um, as Cole knows, I started uh, working with, uh, I don't know if he wants me to say his name on here, but he's a uh, little he doesn't like that kind of stuff but uh working with our strongman program here and under raymond or ramon sorry i got a little nervous on camera i mess things up once in a while so if you see me on instagram you're gonna see me smiling i might stutter a few times that's just how i am i'll just tell you guys on it here now uh i started working with ramon at wsu i worked there as guest services and then i also worked membership and I had uh, eventually worked my way up to being a trainer which I really enjoyed it gave me the opportunity to not only express myself and how I train people but I believe there's a certain threshold and point in your life where your hobbies and your interests the only way to really continue to expand on them in a way that you're breaking down barriers and learning new things is to actually teach them so I got to start teaching these concepts to people and transferring what I learned in the outdoors into the gym and vice versa to help people and I really enjoyed that and strongman was a really really big catalyst for me in that because strongman was and ironically I actually didn't know much about strongman until I went to WSU I had like heard of it and but uh, I was just so busy at the time I hadn't really done the proper research into it but um you know I mean lifting rocks and lifting logs and heavy weights and crazy concepts that you don't really see too much you know and kind of just out of bounds stuff that you would never expect to see in a commercial gym I just thought that was really interesting and I kind of took off with that and yeah so now I coach people in strongman I do some um general training as well and I do still I work in the outdoor industry currently so that's uh I split my time between those two but that's just a little bit about me uh, I'm sure we can if you guys have any questions, I can expand on it, but that's the condensed version, I would guess. Yeah, no, that's great, man. It's a, you definitely have a really unique background. Um, there's a lot of different experiences there. I mean, it's definitely uh, cool to hear about. Um, I didn't know a couple of those things. So uh, I want to talk a little bit more about like your dive into, into strongman kind of as a result of your um, experiences with outdoors and all of that. Like when you started making all of your own equipment, was it already sort of um were you trying to make like standard gym equipment or were you just making stuff to to just lift um in this sort of an unnatural way already or an an un uh what's that word i'm looking for unconventional way unconventional yeah um yeah so i would say it was a bit of both um part of it was just simply picking heavy objects up and moving them in a variety of ways uh, whether through logs or stone or metal or whatever I would find around me. Um, and obviously that's a big part of strongman. It's almost all of strongman. Um, and also part of me was trying to push some boundaries and try some new concepts with my 
because when I got certified in the uh, at being a personal trainer and certified in strongman, and as I continue to get more certifications here, I learn more about how the body works mechanically and anatomically and things like that. Um, I try to work within those bounds, obviously, to not do anything that I could, you know, cause damage and stuff like that. And some things I do take from a gym, you know, I mean, uh, deadlift, for example, you know, you can deadlift a lot of things and pick them up, but most of the time, most objects are not a straight bar. Um, so you have your Atlas stones, your log lifts. Uh, but I did like, for example, I took a piece of maple is about six feet long by about probably six inches, five inches in diameter. Um, drilled some eye hooks into it, uh, used, um, used carabiners originally. And then I just kind of went to chain after a while for safety reasons, but and then just took some other eye hooks and put them in logs. And I was like, let's see if I can make a deadlift. And I mean, yeah, that was definitely something I stole from a conventional, from a standard gym. And after a while, it be, kind of became, all right, what are the main motions that I like to do? Which was, you know, the, the uh, I guess your deadlift, your squat, and your bench. And bench is probably the hardest thing to recreate. So it's probably the thing I don't do that much. In the outdoors, um, I do a lot of overhead pressing when it comes to outdoor fitness. Bench is a little bit, I don't want to say dangerous because I hate to use, I, I, I like to tell people, yes, this can be dangerous, but I believe if you're properly trained and you go through your, your you know, you dot your I's and cross your T's, most things are fairly safe. But bench is a little tough because you're not using metal generally at least when i'm using like outdoor stuff or if i am at scrap metal so i don't like to put anything above my chest because the risk of not necessarily the risk of it falling that's not something i'm just worried about my um there's always a chance something could snap and one of the biggest injuries in the outdoors people uh just actually don't really know because it's not as popularized is impaling yourself uh, tripping, falling, wood is very sharp if you are propelling your whole body weight down on top of it or if it has something mechanically shooting it into you. Um, so bench is probably the thing that I haven't really taken from the gym and moved to the outdoors, but I do a lot of overhead pressing in the outdoors, a lot of squat, a lot of deadlift, um, a lot of carries, things like that. But So those are things I would say I've taken from the gym and then all, some stuff like uh the stones i've lifted and possibly like the homemade um the homemade viking press where i just took a fork tree and stuck a very large um log in it basically um and hook something onto it that's more of just a natural motion of something that would be a lever and that's something i try to use a lot as like levers and pulleys and stuff so that's that's more when i I start creating my own stuff I would say yeah yeah it sounds like you're you really like the idea of getting strong through the use of uh, of tools rather than very specific like weight training implements yes I believe tools are much more important than specific things I try to avoid I mean yet like when you get to a certain point I think it's awesome uh, like an advanced level and at a very beginner level um, I think it's important to have specific things that you can show people to build confidence or an advanced level to uh, recreate and try to push yourself to actually recreate something that might be very difficult to recreate naturally. But I think when you're given tools and no exact end, like end result, like no expected end result, 
you can usually go above and beyond what you expected you can do because you take what's in your head and you make it real. And just like a muscle, you know, your mind, when you challenge it, you force it to push its boundaries and grow, your creativity follows. And if you push yourself to be creative, you will eventually become more creative whether you like it or not. Just like if you bench press twice a week for five years, you will have a stronger chest, you know? Just if you force yourself maybe even an hour every week to be creative, just give yourself something and have an idea of what you want to do, you will become more creative. And that's something I learned along just along that path. And I think it's something that sticks with us for life. It's somewhat of an unmasterable skill, which I really enjoy. Yeah, that's really wise, man. Yeah, speaking of being creative and <clears throat> building skills over time, I think with the recent pandemic, people have had to be creative with how they've trained or worked out. And uh, maybe intuitively with your outdoors background, you were able to um, take the commercial gym or the barbell access that we might have in our normal gyms and take that outside into your home backyard. Um, what might you tell us about your, you know, your ideas about getting people outdoors and using their surroundings to not only strength train potentially, but to also maybe um, provide education into learning how to survive or learning how to, to thrive in the outdoor environment? That's a great question. Um, I think the best way to put it is when you teach people to be comfortable and teach them to relax in new environments, that is about 80% of survival. Um, there's actually somewhat of a, of, a, uh, of a night and day between the two different outdoor communities. You have your like very intense survival focused outdoor community. And that's more usually based on some military stuff, which is understandable if you're in the military you have very different priorities i don't believe that carries over to civilian life as well because to to understand the outdoors to say that you need to survive is kind of like putting someone in a grocery store and telling them not to starve to death it's it's once you understand what's around you you the and the more you learn the the less you need to carry and the more comfortable you are, you don't really see it as survival anymore. Um, that's why I very rarely use that term if I don't have to. Um, it just becomes like wilderness living or just li like just living, you know, really is what it is. And, and now to take fitness and help people get into the outdoors, not only do you make them more comfortable being outside as a whole, but you teach them attention to detail. You teach them uh, different aspects about the plants or trees around you. For example, if I was to make, if I was to take a log that was uh, six, four inches in diameter, and now if I took that log to lift weight with, if I had put some sort of weight implement on either side of any, any uh, log, metal, whatever, it's more about the weight. If I was to make that out of oak, you know, that's a really good, that's a really good tool that I can use for a long time. It would be realistically be pretty safe if I built it properly, if it was a good piece of oak. Now, if I was to take that and make that out of basswood, I would probably end up stabbing myself in the throat with a piece of shrapnel. So <laughs> that attention to detail, once you learn to respect the outdoors and see it as, a, as something you need to educate yourself on, it, it does become less about survival. And same with fitness, you know, once you teach yourself the concepts, okay, what's a, what's a softwood, what's a hardwood? Okay, what's a 
push and a pull and how are those different? How is a hard one and a soft one different? What are the what are the universal truths that I can see that will let me know if I'm using my back muscle or my chest muscle? What are the universal truths to tell me if this tree is you know going to be good lumber or if it's good firewood or if it's good carving wood? Once you understand those concepts, you're I mean you're you can do really anything. And I think fitness is important with that because you have to understand yourself to understand the world around you and vice versa. To understand yourself, you have to understand the world around you. In my opinion, that's just what I believe. Um, Because I don't feel like we can truly understand the human condition if we don't understand where we came from, what we evolved from, the environment and everything that shaped us into who we are today. But I also don't think we can get to that point in ourselves if we don't look at ourselves and understand like, who am I? Like, what do I like to do? What are my interests? What are things that I can conceptually create and, and put into the world around me? And that, I mean, that skill will take you anywhere though. Sales, marketing. And that's, that's another thing. That's kind of weird. Uh, I don't I didn't think of that, uh, till I just said it, but like I used to work in sales and marketing and all I did was, you know, I'd walk around outside for a couple hours and think, all right, what is, what is a way that I can voice what I, what I'm thinking into the world. And then I look at the world around me and I see the ways that nature expresses itself through, you know, if uh, a disturbed, uh, disturbed roadside is going to have certain plants. Why does it have those certain plants there? Well, they're nitrogen fixtures. They have long tap roots. Those plants are like an alder, for example, that grows in a, a recently logged area. Alders tend not to live that long. They suck up a lot of water. They fall down. That's, carbon and nitrogen into the soil for larger trees to grow where your cedar forest will come from eventually. So once you teach people to understand themselves and the world around them and the universal truths that we can practice and prove, which is again a skill, it's not something we just inherently have, it's a skill. The uh, universal truth of gravity, I mean you don't know gravity's there until you fall down sometimes, you know. I think those two are interconnected. And when we teach people to be more aware of the world around them, they're more aware of themselves. And when they're more aware of themselves, they're more aware of the world around them. Yeah, that's that. I, I definitely agree, man. It's, it seems like a core, a core piece of your philosophy is like self-efficacy, just being, you know, being, being capable of taking care of yourself and taking care of the, the area around you and, and, and the people around you. But like, did you have a moment you know, as you were growing up, you said that this outdoor experience kind of started when you were a teenager, um, especially because you kind of grew up in it. What was there like a moment or a time frame in your life where this sort of like coalesced and being like, uh, like, yeah, these skills, I, I have enough that like, I got this, like, I, you know, there's always more to learn. But like, did you ever have that, that moment? Like, I'm like, I believe in myself right now. Um, yes, I would say I always, um, and not to get too far into it, because I don't want to sidetrack um, you guys here, but I grew up in, a, in an interesting environment. I have to be extremely careful on my phrasing, because a lot of these people are still alive today, obviously, and I have interactions with them. Um, I grew up in a very interesting environment and very interesting circumstances, and I had to be very self-reliant from a young age um, into how I did things and necessarily under discerning adults as either looking out for me or not looking out for me 
And through a lot of trial and error, I started to understand that. So I, I think I had that understanding going into it. I, I knew that the, the ideas were there in the sense of, of I can take care of myself. I just need to educate myself on how to do it. And that, that self-confidence I got through my, um, my early childhood, um, dealing with certain things with family members and um, the town around me, that self-confidence was, was key because that's, I mean, that, that was really 90% of getting into all this with fitness. Once I was confident in myself that I could do something, I knew the only thing stopping me from doing it was just my level of education and my time invested in. So same with the out, uh, same with the outdoors. So that I definitely gained more confidence in things I could do. So for, at 16, for example, I knew I could camp in 32 degrees, so around freezing. And then at 17, I went camping in 52 below zero by myself. Wow. So I understood um, that year, I educated myself through personal experience in winter, being outside nearly every day, you know, observing the winter world around me and then also outside education uh, like through YouTube or YouTube is a big thing for me. I think YouTube is one of the best things that happened to humanity um, really ever, in my opinion. I've been able, 95% of the things that I go out and learn that are not personal experience I learned from YouTube. But uh, yeah, so once I... Once I understood like, okay, I can do this. This is a starting point. So then I didn't even, I didn't focus on summer camping. I was, if I can camp in 32 degrees. I can camp in the summer. What, what do I need to know to go beyond this? So I looked up Arctic, you know, Arctic expeditions. I read journals. I read Hudson Bay journals from the trappers who went to Ontario and Nova Scotia and uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan and places like that where, you know, it, I mean, that's a whole different kind of cold. That's like being on Mars almost. <laughs> that's a whole different kind of environment. So I figured, all right, let's learn from these people's experiences. And that's kind of what YouTube is to me. It's, it's experiences I haven't had yet that other people have had that I can glean that knowledge from. So I think I always had the understanding I could do it. I just understood to fully make my thoughts a reality. I needed to educate myself on how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. YouTube is definitely incredible. And like, um, you, you're touching on this, this theme that Devin and I have talked about uh, quite a bit. And it's, it's the, this idea of, you know, your, your general intuition is really, uh, is really just the combination of your experiences, the, the things that happen to you, and the things that you actively seek to learn, and then synthesizing that information in order to create a decision that gets made. Inherently, everything is, is a decision of doing something or not doing something. And by, by educating yourself, you know, you've, you've created uh, a very self-efficacious life. And I like to see that. That's awesome. Man. Thank you. Devin, did you have something? Yeah, I kind of want to build off the, the education aspect because you're from Illinois um, and you described what part you're from. And um, Cole moved around a bunch growing up. I'm, I'm born and raised in Hawaii and uh, very different environments, per se. Um, so our outdoor experiences and maybe the education and, and lessons we've learned are all vastly different. Um, kind of a two-part question. If Do you think outdoor education should be a part of, you know, curriculums within schooling? And at what point does that start? You know, does it start before you start attending school? 
um, and how does it progress potentially? And then also, you know, for maybe people who live in the city like New York or LA or very metro areas, um, how do they get involved in something like that? Do they just pack the car up and go and, and kind of figure it out? Or like what types of suggestions, recommendations, resources would you recommend those individuals? Awesome. I love these questions. That, that, when I talk to to the point where everyone who knows me. Um, so I think outdoor education is as important as any education school in some cases, I dare to say more important um, because it teaches you, if nothing else, it teaches you a self-reliance, creativity, and conceptual learning, which those three things will take you anywhere in life. I mean, you could have a you could have someone with a PhD in Harvard who doesn't understand that, at a, and not knocking Harvard, that was just the first school that came to my head. And you have another person who understands those three concepts with a high school education. I'll put my money on that high school education every day, um, just from the understanding of those three concepts. Uh, so, I believe it is essential. I believe I don't necessarily think we need to like go the Spartan way and toss eight-year-olds into the wilderness, but um, <laughs> I think integrating outdoor education into not, uh, I believe it's like a one-week program now is somewhat, I don't know if it's required exactly. I've seen a lot of very confusing uh, rules on it, but I do know that a lot of people have gone to like a one-week outdoor ed camp. Um, and that's not enough. That, that's just a vacation for kids. And, that, and at that point, they're just kind of goofing around, having fun with each other because they don't get to have fun in school as much as they should, in my opinion. And not, not, I believe teachers are incredible. I believe a lot of teachers do their best. I just think they're working within a system that doesn't, is not conducive for them to reach their potential or the children's. Um, I believe it should start around pre-K. Um, I've worked with toddlers in the outdoors. Um, in Idaho, actually, which I thought was incredible. And those kids, I mean, you can really watch, and I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this. I learned more about human evolution watching a toddler play with sticks than I've ever learned from a book. Because you can right there watch human evolution. I mean, you watch a toddler, they, they, they break a stick, they understand the stick is sharp. Then they start poking things with the stick because it's sharp. And right there, you have spears. Like uh, right there, you have you have kid fall in the water once. He understands you don't just walk out on the thin ice or you. And this didn't happen at that school uh, because they know me, and I I want to be sure that that school knows. I they're very 100% safe. They don't let kids walk out on the water or anything. But another example, I've watched a kid fall in the water through ice, only waist deep. He was fine. Um, he understood. <laughs> he started chucking rocks at the ice to me he didn't fall in next time like hit it make sure i mean those that human evolution is alive and well today we just we tend to see it as like a historical or a biological concept when it's a living reality so and to like i said to understand ourselves we have to understand the world around us and vice versa so for these kids to get the proper education they need to fully absorb everything they're going to learn in high school and middle school and college and beyond um i believe I believe it's an absolutely necessary precursor. How exactly that's implemented, I think, does vary. Um, like you said, it's, it's slightly difficult in the cities the way they're designed today. Um, I think we're going in the right direction with like parks and stuff like that. I don't think they're enough. I believe um, 
whether it's there's a variety of ways it can be met and every city's different so i have to be somewhat vague here um i believe that the way we build our cities has to change and to facilitate for people in the cities to get outside i i don't think cities can be just cement for 40 miles in any direction it just doesn't work i mean look at coronavirus has showed us that we can't i mean look what happened in new york and thank god you know we got that under control there but i mean hypothetically if corona was a more not that it's not a serious virus but if it was a virus you know that was dropping people like that i mean we could have lost millions of people in the course of weeks we, we we can't it's not natural and not natural things will not last under natural circumstances and that's just to me that just i think that's shouldn't be something that's designed in that and not only in agriculture but in city design basically in engineering i guess would be the best way to put it um so i do think whether we have to do government stuff like the government has to step in and pay for some of it in the cities or really how we do it is very different. I think this is one of the few things where the the uh, the cost will be actually a lot lower for rural areas to get kids outside because there are rural areas in suburban areas. Um, I mean, even here in Illinois, where pretty much everything is turning to concrete and corn, I can I can get to something in about thirty to forty minutes, which for a school is not a far trip on a bus. Um, in the cities, yeah, like you have a bit of a different circumstance, whether it's uh, more funding, which I believe the schools need already, but specific funding for this, or we start taking, which I believe is also important, empty plots in the cities that are just aren't doing anything, especially in areas that have been hit hard by the recession or just bad economic times. I believe it's either the cities, it, depending on who you talk to and where you go, I believe it's the responsibility to turn those places back into natural environments, whether that's through community gardens, community parks, um, natural areas, natural resource areas. Um, in here, we just, we call them, uh, what are they called here in Illinois? Um, just wild space, I think is the one of the technical terms. I don't remember, I'm sorry, I just can't recall it. Um, we have to make the outdoors accessible to everyone whether they are living in the cities or they're living in the suburbs and they're living in urban areas. And that's part of what I'll be doing with my, uh, I plan on starting a bison ranch and using it as an outdoor center for kids. And one of the biggest parts of that is going to be taking kids from the city and giving them a place to come out for multiple days at a very, very low cost, if next to nothing cost if possible uh, to the schools. And part of the location design of that will be towards larger cities so I can, have those kids come out from larger cities and adults. I would like to run adult camps. There's a little more, uh, a little more thought and a little more particular ways that that has to go about with adults as compared to kids. But I think it's extremely important. And I don't think adding one class of outdoor education, whether it's blocked up in an hour per week or five, uh, five day school week, or if it's like a, I think I think elementary classes are like 20 to 30 minutes long now. Um, I know every state's different. So whether it's adding that class in per day or if it's just, even if it's just getting kids outside longer for recess, which is a, a one hour class a week, I guarantee, I, I would put all of my money, 
on the fact that if they taught those kids one hour of outdoor skills a week and gave them an extra half hour, hour for recess throughout the day, they would see those skills in action because it's just natural. It's just natural for those kids to do that. So yes, I do believe it's extremely important and I believe it should just like anything else build on itself throughout high school, but I don't think anyone should leave high school without a strong understanding of A, self-reliance, emergency survival, which is a term I'll use, which is if you're in an emergency, how to survive that particular emergency as compared to just outdoor survival, because again, to me, that term doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So emergency survival, self-reliance, a basic understanding of tools and how to work with tools, and then also permaculture, which is so uh, you might know it as like sustainable agriculture, greenhouses, you know, things like that. The Three Sisters is a really popular example. I don't think people should leave high school without that understanding. And I believe it should be mandated. Um, and I believe it's also something important for parents to teach, but I don't think a lot of parents are in the position to do that right now. Um, and yeah, I do think for cities, we either A, have to redesign the way we do cities, or we have to figure out, I mean, we, I mean, what, we have, we're, we're just the United States alone, we have so much, so much outdoor space, that, and so much financial strength, relatively speaking, that I, I don't see a way that we cannot do some sort of state or local level where we provide low cost opportunities for people to get into the outdoors, how exactly that looks, I do think will vary. That's, you bring up one, the, I really wanna dive into that topic about the, the idea of city redesign. Um, there, there's an experiment that somebody did a while ago and it's a, it's a microbiology experiment where they took a map of the United States and they, play, they found all of the major resource areas because just inherently any, any living being um, coalesces around easily accessible resources, water, um, food, et cetera. And one of the cool things that this, this little experiment did, they basically took bacteria colonies and they just kind of like spread it out everywhere. And then they, over time, they saw where the bacteria was coalescing. And it looks almost exactly the same way that our cities were designed. They, they have the, the same sort of highway structure uh, of ferrying nutrients into the main colony and things like that. Um, and so that's something that's inherent in just uh, our biology all the way down to single cell organisms. So when mm -hmm. you talk about the idea of redesigning cities, either in the future or what we have now, like, like where do we draw that line between um, the, the volume of people that we have that coalesce to an area and the access to resources that require um, that require those people? Like, do you want to spread them out more? Do you want to like, do you want to have more resources um, coming in and then replenishing of the resources outside? Like, like what, what are your thoughts there? So that's actually really interesting. That uh, opens up a whole new thing where interestingly enough, and it's hard to believe based on the world we live in now, we have the knowledge to create such an abundance of resource that the idea of like scarcity almost, I don't want to say doesn't exist, but if we took a place like New York and redesigned it with a, a technology where we had um you know we had rooftops with greenhouses and um we had just we restored riparian riparian zones in the water we restored the seashores and things like that not not only would those cities have the resources to do it 
but people would naturally people we could handle more people than we do now like it's not natural for so many people to be so condensed but it's being artificially so like it's being artificially allowed i guess would be the best way to put it because we haven't put the necessary resource generators in to allow that many people but so naturally right now i would say we have to spread the cities out and we're kind of seeing that right now actually like new york is having somewhat of a mass exodus and as well as la and other large cities across the country are having somewhat of a mass exodus um with suburban housing prices going up and things like that and i think record number of apartments are uninhabited in manhattan right now um but if we put the resource generators in there where we put trees where we put um just open fields where just plants can actually grow and things like that and we taught people about how to utilize those resources properly and we we would also just have to slow down like we would have to change the way we live to fully utilize the resources properly but it it, it involves because like you said the cities somewhat almost are based on how we evolved and how our single cells run but we also are used to having more things around like for example i mean just the number of trees 200 years ago was incredible almost double what we have now um i know right now they say we have more trees than we ever had that's somewhat this when you start rec keeping those records right after some of the biggest logging humanity's ever seen that's somewhat of a hard way to um compare it but yeah i think we need to put resource generators in whether it's food whether it's clean water whether it's wild spaces and these these areas can handle that amount of people we just need to give them uh, i mean we need to put the the wheel in motion i guess would be the best way to put it by actually planting the trees and restoring these watersheds and the waterfronts and places like that i think then not only will we have cleaner air we'll see the redu reduction of pollution with either stricter laws and more trees to absorb carbon and things like that but people i think inherently do not want to destroy the place they live in so i think when we invest and create these just either beautiful waterfronts or things like that i think people as life slows down and they have more time they really are more okay with themselves and their surroundings will do more to and again, this is somewhat, I mean, I'm just speculating, but this is what I've seen and what I believe will do more to enhance and protect the places they live in. So I think the pollution problem will go down. The food production problem will go down. Clean water will be much more available. Um, things like that, heat and, you know, I mean, with the greenhouses, we can produce enough heat to heat a whole apartment building easily, uh, just with a couple of rooftops and solar panels. Hmm. And and Elon Musk, for example, he's, with cities getting larger, we can't really build up any more than we have. Like theoretically we could, but not, it wouldn't be practical, but tunnels are a very underutilized system right now. And yes, it's not exactly natural. So we're kind of stepping out of the range of what, what is natural and what is not, but um, to produce less roadways, go underground he started what's called the boring company actually and it's somewhat of a conceptual board of people that are looking into um putting tunnels under los angeles to deal with the traffic problem and again solar city i, I hate to sound like i'm being like oh elon musk you know because it's so 
hyped up and memes and things like that. But the things he is doing are incredible. With I mean, you look at Solar City and stuff. Solar power is our best bet at renewable energy. Wind is wind is really, in my opinion, not going to be practical on a mass scale, but solar power geothermal power things like that i mean hawaii i mean hawaii sits on top of a volcano we could tap enough energy from those volcanoes without really doing any sort of natural disturbance to really power almost all of hawaii is what the studies have shown obviously again for anyone watching this a lot of this is conceptual and yes there's a ton of data and a ton of research that needs to be done but the things we show now are showing that it is possible. We just need to start implementing them. And it, it, really the only thing holding it back is preconceived notions and capital to get it started. And that's where people like Elon Musk, for example, come in where he has the capital to start the boring company, Solar City, things like that. Yeah, I, really quick, um, Devin, I know you, got a, you probably got a question here, but um, there, there's the show on Netflix. It's the it's Zac Efron's show. Have you ever seen it? I've heard. I have not seen it though. I've sadly been a little too busy. Yeah, it's, it's so it's hit or miss. But there's a uh, there's one episode where he actually goes to New Zealand and he t and he goes to these geothermal locations where they're harnessing the uh, the energy of these um, of these massive plots of uh, of geothermal area. And New Zealand in 20 years has taken their energy from being 80% reliant on coal, on coal and uh, and outsourced energy to be 100% self-sufficient. I mean, their population is a fraction of any other countries um, for the size of land that they have to be able to mine resource, but um, they use all of the resources within that area. So, I mean, I think that it's uh, your, your idea that we could definitely use the volcanoes in Hawaii or the San Andreas Fault and harness those energies along the West Coast or all across the East Coast. I mean, we have these massive geothermal areas that aren't even tapped, that are like really, uh, that are very deep underground. We could definitely take those and uh, and and use those to sustain the cities that we that we already have. Absolutely, and a part of what we need to do is just stop. I mean, the the best way to get out of a hole is to stop digging. You know what I mean? And yeah, we'll, that's true. We'll, like the best thing we can do right now is to run with what we know works. And I mean, for example, like California. California's wildfires are one hundred percent. Let me rephrase this: the extreme damage that they are doing is one hundred percent preventable not only by uh, differently plotting out how we build cities to be more fire safe, but also you know, just an understanding of how natural, the natural cycle works. And I mean, for California, part of the reason California is in the pickle that it is, is they basically just stopped cutting wood, which obviously you don't want to over harvest timber and clear cut, but fires are a very natural part of the cycle there uh in the west coast but anywhere really but if you cut that off for a hundred years and you don't allow fires and you continuously do fire suppression it's just let i mean it's like a pressure gauge if you let if you have a little bit of steam coming off the pressure gauge the thing is going to run for a long time if you plug that up and just crank it up yeah, it's yeah. going to and that's what we're i think our government, like we need to vote in or basically at this point force our government to look at the way it is treating our environment because it is, it is not only a matter of national security, it's a matter of um, just homeland protection, personal health, mental health, uh, education, 
the obesity problem. I mean, I can go on and on and talk about where redesigning our cities and having more ecologically friendly world is not only more environmentally sustainable, but it's more, um, it's more profitable. We can create more resources that inherent is profit. Money is simply resource in a agreed upon form. And if we create these more resources, we can deal with the wealth gap and we can deal with other issues that come with money and poverty and things like that. So yeah, you're a hundred percent right. Yeah. Just to keep the ball rolling on, I guess, environment and other things that are affected by it. Um, interesting. We're talking about another country here outside of the United States, but Japan actually did a couple of studies on um, how just taking their subjects and putting them out in nature um, did a lot of benefit for their mental health. Um, and I'd argue that would apply in any other country for any other human being. Um, I noticed I did a little deep dive on your Instagram and uh, at the top, it, it has a hashtag mental health advocate. Um, and I, I couldn't have you on here without talking about this. Um, but could you just tell us some more, a little bit more about um, how you got into mental health advocacy um, and things like that? Absolutely. So um, I appreciate you bringing it up. I think it's an important thing to talk about, you know. Um, well, it started a few different ways. Um, I, I can't really pinpoint it exactly what caused it. I don't believe there is a particular cause. Um, a mixture of the environment I grew up in, which was stressful, to put it in a, in a, in a nice way, um, caused me to struggle uh, with a variety of things. I was bullied extremely badly at which schools because of it at one point. Um, so I dealt with a lot of mental health issues myself. I, I had a lot of uh, run-ins with the law. I had a lot of uh, just general negativity, just very upset. Um, part of the reason I found fitness outdoors was because of that. Um, fitness did help, but it also in a way did make it worse because I hadn't dealt with those issues and fitness is an incredible tool for dealing with mental health. But if you're not dealing with it in another way, it will make it worse. And I can almost guarantee that for a lot of people and Cole could probably speak to that. He knows like fitness can also really, really help. But if you're not really looking at the root causes and dealing with self-esteem and stuff, it can make it worse. Cause you know, you have a cat with a bad temper. That's one problem. Next thing you got, you got a 260 pound adult with a bad temper on, you know, as much like a hundred it's just every drug he can get his hands on steroids and things like that is that's going to bring out that bad part of his personality or just self-esteem issues, you know, with people not liking how they look either. They think they're too thin or too big. Um, so fitness at the time didn't make it worse because I hadn't dealt with my problems. So now I was just a kid with a bit of an anger problem, very depressed. And now at the time I was being bullied so badly, I could do something about it. And that I didn't handle it exactly the way I should have. I just basically just went and knocked like four people out. Like, and just, and that taught me, I was like, I need to get a grip on this. Like, this is not a path I wanna go down. So um, in my teens, I realized like, all right, I need to get a grip on my mental health. So through a variety of good friends, um, family I had talked to, therapy, personal experience being outside, I started to get more of a grip on my mental health and I believe that coincided. I don't know exactly if it caused, which caused the other, but I know they coincided with each other. Um, of just finding out who I was. And I believe that once we know who we are, a lot of the mental health issues can not obviously can't be, they're not going to disappear, but I think the issue 
is a lot more manageable um, because once we have that self-worth, we can really like, okay, was this person calling me fat or too skinny or weak or whatever? Was that really something I believe about myself? And the answer, obviously, if you have a good self-worth and you're like, no, I'm here right now. I'm happy with who I am as an inherent person and I'm on a journey and I understand progress and I'm not comparing myself to other people, whether that's in your, in your job, uh, in your home life, in your fitness life, on Instagram or social media, um, you can, you can start making better decisions about how you talk to yourself, what you allow people to say to you and you know, who you allow in your life. So I went through that journey where I started realizing like, okay, is this something I truly believe about myself. And if it is, say it is true. Say, I, I don't know, say someone said that I was depressing, you know, like, okay, I inherently know that I'm a good person. I have value. Maybe I am being negative. How can I work on that? You know, and like that kind of self-worth, I believe allows you to deal with things that in down the road would cause mental health issues where if someone had just told me I was depressed I'm like, yeah, I'm a depressing person. I suck, you know, like, and I just hate myself for it. That, that kind of stuff really will weigh on you after a while. So finding myself, I believe was essential to my mental health journey. And I like to help people with that by being authentically myself or as much as I can be as much as I, as much as I can, like literally, just be myself to people and it's hard to explain like to just give a hundred percent of yourself to people i found that i'm advocating for mental health because when people see that i'm comfortable with who i am they are comfortable to be themselves with me and i noticed that that has an effect on people and it will inherently make them if it doesn't it's not obviously again not going to make it disappear but it will I notice it does kind of put a twinkle in their eye when they are themselves and they tell me about their interests and the things they really like, you know, that they might not think anyone cares about or wants to hear, you know, and I watch them start going on that journey. And I'm a big advocate of therapy. I'm a big advocate of talking to a professional. I'm not a professional by any means. I've gone and done certification courses in mental health to help identify crisis situations. But I, the first thing I tell people is, all right, well, my first thing is you should talk to a therapist, but I, as a person, I am here for you, not a professional. I, as a person, I am here for you. And that's kind of where that mental health advocate came from. And I think where I grew up, at least, especially in the time period I grew up here, um, it was a very um, aggressive or toxically masculine culture, I guess is the best way to put it, where you didn't talk about how you felt, you didn't complain you didn't say that you were unhappy you just dealt with it and that again i think is a big problem in a lot of rural farming communities especially obviously everywhere but i just i see it maybe it's because i grew up with it i see it the most in those communities um and again i'm i'm talking about men here not because i don't think women's mental health is important it's just i have experience with men's mental health obviously being a man and knowing mostly men um so I just talk about my experience, I guess, but being my authentic self around those people garners a lot of attention, not necessarily all of it's positive, but at the end of the day, I see that people are more comfortable to be themselves around me. And just like anything else, once you get the wheel turning, 
if they're more comfortable to be themselves around you, they might, you know, take the leap and try to be themselves at work or try to be themselves with their family or their friends, you know, and realize that it's okay to be yourself. And it's just, it's in my, it's more than okay. It's essential. And I guess that's how my advocacy started is simply just being heart to heart with people. I, I'm not like, again, I'm not a professional. I can't diagnose people or anything like that, but I can sit down and talk to you for a couple hours. That's for sure. Yeah, man. Thank you for sharing that. It's, it's like that, that tool that you're using is, is something that I, is very powerful. People want to be connected with that. We, we seek the connection with other people where we are, we are a social species, no matter how much, um, you know, no matter how much we, we talk about introvert versus extrovert and all of that, we're a very social species one way or the other. And it's, it is important that, that people have somebody that they can not necessarily look up or look down to, but just look directly at. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate the way that, the way that you're going about that. And it's important. And it's, and it's not even, in, it's not, it, it's in a way that is, that bolsters everybody at the same time that you're able to take care of yourself. You know, that's, it's not something that requires any extra effort, it seems like. And that's, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing that, that uh, I really enjoy seeing. So yeah, that's great, man. Thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I guess the little quote, I guess, that I don't know if I thought of it. I don't know if it's a paraphrase of something I saw a long time ago. Um, when you are so self-reliant that you can meet your needs to an excess, you have nothing to do but give to other people. And that's why I believe self-reliance is absolutely so important, whether it's in fitness, in the outdoors, in your personal or professional lives, in your mental health, your physical health. I think I, when, when you are producing in abundance, I don't believe you have anything that you should be doing besides giving. That, that kind of goes back to that environmental aspect of, of our, our resources and all of that in our cities. You know, our, our cities, because they get so compact and and they, uh, we have all of these excess of resources outside that have to go into the city. If we just teach these people or design these cities in such a way that people become self-reliant within that city, the places that have to give can start giving everywhere else. And, you know, it really, like, that's a, that's a global thing. The globalization of our economy, of our mental health, of our community is, is very, very important. So. Absolutely. Um. Let's see. We got about. We just got just a couple of minutes left. So, um, real quick, I actually just wanted to. Uh, I know you're you're a huge reader and you love looking into, um, yeah. just everything. What kind of books have been re you've been reading lately? Lately, I've uh, I've been on three books. Uh, they've kind of taken me a little bit longer than normal because I, uh, like I said, I've been a little busy lately. Uh, Woodcraft and Camping by Nesmick, who was. Uh, a turn of the century outdoorsman who kind of looked at the outdoors in a, in, a, in a new way for that time period. I think it's a good read, whether you're interested in the outdoors or not. Talks a lot about minimalism, being happy with yourself, um, using your surroundings to your full advantage. I believe it's an incredible book. It does shed a lot of really cool light, not only into history, but into the outdoors. Um, another book that I've been reading is Sharing Nature with Children. Um, I'm most likely back into teaching here pretty soon um, after this move. So I wanna, again, be a better teacher. And obviously that's a never ending journey. And this is um, a unique, I, I'm sorry, I can't recall the author's name off the top of my head. Um, I could probably send it to you later if you wanted to 
put the author in attachment to what I'm talking about, but it basically talks about how to identify certain archetypes that we'll see in children and how to best engage them with the outdoors. Obviously every child's unique, especially. Um, but there are certain archetypes that we can see to at least start to tailor an approach to give us like a direction to go. Um, and that's been really interesting to me. It's got a lot of like games and fun examples and stuff that you can do with that. Um, and then I'm also, I, well, this is an audio book. I'm listening to two of them right now. Principles by Ray Dalio. Uh, Dalio he is the founder of Bridgewater Capital. It's one of the largest investment firms in the world. Um, if not the largest, uh, it's in like the top three. It's very large. Um, he talks a lot about work principles and finding out who you are and working with people. It's a lot of social interaction principles and self-discipline and it's very interesting. I like it a lot. It does uh, tie over into the financial side of my interests, which is uh, something I, I do like. Um, so what it's, again? I'm sorry, what? What's the name of the book again? Uh, it's called Principles by Ray Dalio. Um, I have the audiobook version and I believe it's, I couldn't tell you how long it is, but the audiobook's about 11 hours. So it's a very, it's a very in-depth read on, on just principles, like ways to, ways to live and deal with things and principles that are very flexible and can be created and tailored to each person's specific life. And then, um, and the other one I was reading is How to Influence People and Win Friends by J.D. Rockefeller. Um, it's a little bit more salesy. It's a little bit more on the side of business. However, it does teach you a lot about how to interact with people and how to come to the best possible conclusion using either your goals or their goals or if it's a group of people and just and how to de-escalate and things like that which are always important because a lot of people um and i, I don't think it's so I, obviously i believe in personal responsibility but a lot of people live in an escalated mindset in today's culture they're very tense they're very ready to jump off at any point because that's just how they're taught to be they're just like a spring that's just compressed all the time and it kind of teaches you how to decompress that spring in people to really get to the heart of that person and again he uses his more from a business perspective but also how to um market and network with people but i think it transfers into all aspects of life so those four have been um kind of equally taking up my time and i think they're all very unique and interesting yeah, thanks for sharing that. Definitely have to check in some of those. And, and for the, the listeners and the viewers, um, those will all be in the description for sure. So you'll be able to check those out. Awesome. Um, Devin, do you have any other questions before we start to wrap up? I have up? one more question. This is the one I had to ask you all. We had you. Um, as I was going through your Instagram, I saw you had a caption. And if you don't follow Mario already, you should follow him. He's got some, some amazing content. It's funny. It's, it's interesting. It's educational. All of it, all of it in between. Um, but there was a caption you had about the first time you took pre-workout. And I think the listeners have to hear about that story because I'm a uh, caffeine junkie and this is a good story. Oh yeah. I was one of, that was a moment in my life. I'll never forget. I, first time I took pre-workout, it was, I, I was like, it, it was towards middle school. I have to look, I, I found an old picture that reminded me of the story. So that, that way I can figure out exactly when it was but basically this was like when pre-workout was first starting like and I was a young teenager I was like 14 or 15 years old at the time um I bought the muscle farm 
assault, I believe it was called. It was like the fruit punch. It was back when the scoop was like this big on yeah, all. Yeah. Just started. And I took, it was, I had dislocated my shoulder a couple of weeks before. So it was like when I was first getting back into working out, I was like, I want to take it to the next level. You know, I took two scoops of it. Had absolutely no caffeine tolerance by this point in my life. I don't even think I ever drank a cup of coffee. Uh, I was just sweating profusely. I did air karate in the mirror for like hours because I couldn't even like I couldn't even bring myself. I just had to like move because I was like, if I don't move, I will die. <laughs> so I karate in the mirror for a couple hours and then it finished because I threw up and then I fell asleep for like sixteen hours. <laughs> oh my god that's hilarious that's a hilarious story <laughs> that's awesome that sounds about right dude they don't they it's a good thing but they don't make pre-workout like they used to I, I think it's i think that's an important uh change that has been made i mean you like you probably hear all of these stories and you see memes and stuff about the old jacked formula the original oh. enemy explode and all of those things like yeah i mean that was it was it was, I mean, it was the Wild West. It was a lawless wasteland of supplements at that point. It was just whatever we could find, and we'll just chuck it in here, and we'll see what happens. And I was a teenager at the point, which is the absolute worst time to have access to something like that um, for a variety of reasons. I'm sure health as well, but I was, I was hooked. Uh, once, I, once I took that, I was like, this is, this is going to be a problem for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. Well, hey, uh, we'll probably wrap it up here. It's right at about an hour. So um, really appreciate you coming on, man. This is definitely like, it's been a great conversation. Um, loved hearing about your experiences, your life experiences. Thank you for sharing everything. And uh, like, I can, I can almost guarantee that Devin and I would love to have you on again sometime in the future. Talk more about some of this stuff because there's a lot of deep dives we can make into some of these topics. So. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, I know I go into kind of a lot of rabbit holes and stuff. So yeah, I would love to talk to you or anybody who sees this. I mean, my messages are always open. I love talking to people. So I, I'm very grateful for the experience and any, ex any experience that comes from it, I will also be extremely grateful. Awesome. Yeah, well, definitely, uh, again, check out uh, Mario's Instagram page. I'll put the, the link in the description and everything. So go check him out. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Mario. I appreciate you joining. Thanks. You have a great day. Bye.